This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is G'day, equity mates, and welcome back to another episode where we are following our journey of learning to invest. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett's status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. Now, we are licensed, but we're not aware of your personal circumstances, so any information on this show is for education and entertainment purposes only. Any advice is general advice. But with that said, my name is Bryce, and it is an absolute pleasure to welcome to the studio alongside me, as always, Mr... (laughs) What did I say? Mr. Wren. Anyway, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. Well, I remember, I remember I was listening back to the first uh, 12 part series we did on GSI and my intro was his parents call him Alec, but the markets call him Wren. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, we were good back in the day. What I happened? Know, I, know. <laughs> um, I think that might be the first time you've officially welcomed me into the studio as well. I think so, yeah. yeah I, don't know, so, I don't know what's going on. I feel, I'm feeling very welcome here, which is ironic because I wasn't welcome in this interview. You weren't welcome in this interview. No, I, I was... Uh, Fortunate enough to sit down with a returning guest from uh, from overseas, Jesse Felder, someone we've had on the show um, a couple of times over the last few years. But Ren, you uh, you were off on holidays, taking a well earned break uh, over Easter. Um, but this is an interview that I did with Jesse. Uh, it was born out of um, his commentary on gold and given what's going on in the macro environment at the moment, we just wanted to check in with him and, and get an understanding of uh, how he's thinking about the commodity, but also more broadly, how he's approaching current market conditions and, and where he's seeing investment opportunities. So Ren, it was uh, unfortunate you weren't able to join us, but uh, I hope you had a good holiday. Yeah, well, I am still on holiday time, so I'm going to wrap it there and let's get to your interview. <laughs> Sounds good. So Jesse began his professional career at Bear Stearns & Co. and later co-founded a multi-billion dollar hedge fund firm headquartered in Santa Monica, California. But since then, he's founded Felder Investment Research and is the publisher of the Felder Report, uh, where he writes and provides plenty of research that has been featured in major publications and websites like the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Yahoo Finance, Business Insider, and more. Jesse is also host and produces the Super Investors and the Art of Worldly, Worldly Wisdom podcasts. He's an incredible thinker and uh, articulates his ideas so clearly through his writing. So make sure you check out his uh, his research and analysis. But without further ado, here is my discussion with Jesse. 
Well, Jesse, uh, welcome to Equity Mates, or welcome back, I should say, uh, returning guest. It's uh, it's great to have you with us. Yes, good back. So, uh, Jesse, we play uh, the Equity Mates Biz Nerdle company guessing game with all our experts. So, the way this works, there's five clues. You can jump in at any time if you think you know what the publicly listed company is. You don't have to wait for the end of five clues. I have no idea how hard or easy this one will be. Uh, let's just see. Let's just see how we go. Clue number one. Let's go. At one hundred billion dollars, my IPO was the biggest in the US for two thousand and twenty. Clue two. In two in two thousand and nineteen, I acquired Hotel Tonight for four hundred million. Um, Hotel Tonight. Clue number three, I was founded by Brian Chesky, Joe Gebbia, and Nathan uh, Blecker-Chick, and I'm headquartered in San Francisco, California. Is it Airbnb? Let's have a look. Clue number five, correct, he's nailed it, Airbnb. You <laughs> <laughs> did a couple extra clues, but... Well, Jesse, you can now that, add that to your daily routine. If you go equitymates.com slash biznerdle, you can play every day. Um, you, you know, like. I play World some other, you know, like mind games every day. So don't get me addicted. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be checking it every day. So, Jesse, um, for those that have just joined us for the first time, you've um, appeared on Equity Mates for a couple of uh, interviews now. So, so thank you so much for coming back. We always love reading your uh, analysis over on the Felder Report and uh, and listening to to your podcasts. So, we wanted to get you on today to sort of cover three broad buckets: just your views on the current state of markets. Um, specifically thoughts on where gold is currently at and then close out with a discussion on just where you're seeing opportunities and perhaps where the market goes from here. And there's plenty happening at the moment with inflation, monetary policy, um, you know, SVB and, and banking. How would you just summarize where the market is sort of currently at? Well, I think that the the average investor thinks that you've had a bear market um, and that bear market is over. We look at where money's, you know, pouring into tech stocks and, in, you know, some doctors lately, um, you know, big tech has kind of led the, led the market this year. It's pretty clear investors look at this decline that we had in 2022 as a buying opportunity. And I think the lesson of, uh, you know, bubbles and bursting bubbles is that um, we haven't even hit the bottom yet. I think that we've seen the first phase of this bear market, uh, and there's another phase to come. First phase has just been the reaction to the reversal in monetary policy and the rise in interest rates, right? Had so much money printed and interest rate fell to, you know, 50 basis points on the 10 year treasury yield. And that created uh, a pretty epic speculative blow off. Um, that once monetary policy is reversed, interest rates kind of normalized to an extent. We've seen uh, markets risk assets having to price start price that in again. And I think that helps to explain why stocks did so poorly last year. Um, but when you look at what utility drives bear markets, recession, and namely earnings recessions, and we are now two quarters into an earnings recession, and I think earnings are going to get worse uh, through the year. Right now, analysts expect the first quarter earnings report to be the bottom. 
Um, but a lot of the leading indicators for earnings that I look at suggest that it's probably not the bottom. We're going to see second and third quarter earnings climb significantly. And so that's not priced in yet in the stock market. And so uh, if if I'm right and earnings are going to decline in, you know, further in second and third quarter, we're going to get this second phase of a bear market, which will be driven by um, an earnings recession. Yeah, right. So what we're seeing in the market at the moment, which is um, a bit of a, you know, markets are performing reasonably well, is what you could say is a bit of a dead cap bounce then. Absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's really amazing to watch investors kind of embrace these rallies because when you look back at the, the dot-com bust in, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, had many uh, rallies like this where you saw NASDAQ rally 20% plus dramatically. And it always sucked investors in. They go, okay, great. This is the bottom. And they bought heavily. And then they gave, you know, the rally was given back and some, you know, fell to new lows. I and mean, you look at those rallies. In 2001 and 2002, but the final low in, in late 2002, um, you know, those declines from those rallies were paying 35, 40% declines mm. from the peaks of those rallies. And so, you know, I, I really do think this is, um, you know, you can call it a bounce, you can call it a sucker's rally, call it whatever you want. This is what we're seeing is, bear, is typical bear market behavior. Uh, it's not at all what we'd expect to see at the at a, a you know a, a bottom of bear market and a new new bull market beginning. And and over what period of time do you expect this to sort of play out? Like, is it in the next quarter? Like, how are markets getting, in your view, getting it so wrong that they're they're not pricing this in? Well, it's going to be really interesting this this earnings season because. I, I think that, you know, like I said, the answer expecting first quarter to be an earnings trough and that companies will return to earnings growth. But so many things, like I, like I said, point to uh, a pr protracted decline in earnings. And, you know, there's one indicator I look at in particular, which is uh, kind of my, you know, macro corporate's, um, you know, lead, which is essentially uh, interest rates, oil prices and the dollar. When you see these three things rise dramatically, you know, it has a very important inverse correlation with earnings two years later. So when you have a strong rise in interest rates, oil prices, and the dollar, it creates a pretty uh, earnings recession two years later. So it was set from those 2020 lows, you know, for oil price went negative, interest rates were super low. Um, you know, uh, you know, the dollar, um, you know, uh, sold off pretty hard and, and, you know, and then, you know, those have been rallying from essentially 2020 through, you know, um, last year, right? Uh, that suggests that over the next, you know, 18 months, we're kind of a real danger zone for earnings. Um, and until you see interest rates come way down and the dollar come way down and oil prices come way down, you, you need to see those three things to kind of lay the foundation for a really nice earnings trough and strong earnings in the future. Um, so we're just not, we're not there. You know, you can also talk about you know, how the pandemic affected uh, big back earnings and, and those kinds of things. And, and now it's actually very similar to dot-com mania and the Y2K scenario, big horde of demand um, that was unsustainable. Uh, and, and you saw it throughout the sector. 
And then in 2001 and two, when that demand, you know, vacuum appeared after that pull forward, it created a very painful earnings experience for all of those companies. And it lasted longer than analysts expected. And, and, and so this, this I think is really similar where we had a pull forward and demand related to the pandemic work from home. Everybody needs a new laptop, you know, upgrade to five mm -hmm. smartphone, whatever it is. Um, and that pulled for a lot of the band. And now we're seeing, you know, just this week it announced uh, Apple, you know, computer sales down 40% year over year uh, in, in, in March. And so, you know, that's what I about like a demand vacuum. That's going to, we're going to see something similar to smartphones and in other areas. Um, and that's even before you see this, I think, uh, you know, like a mass extinction event in, you know, a lot of these non-profitable startups, which are all, you know, customers of, you know, these big tech companies. They were advertising on YouTube and advertising on Meta and all of these things. And though, you know, when that goes away, that's going to be, you know, a problem for these, these companies as well. Do you think that the Fed did the right thing with what they've done with interest rates? Have they gone too far? Here in Australia um, this month, our Reserve Bank actually paused raising rates. Um, there's a question on whether they do that again this coming month, but um, it seems the, the Fed is is still very much on, on the path of raising. What, what's your sort of sentiment around the action of um, central banks around the world at the moment? Well, I think, you know, I've used the metaphor of speed wobbles. I think what we're seeing right now is central bank speed wobbles. If you've or, you know, ridden a skateboard. You know, I grew up surfing and skateboarding. So, you know, you get going down too fast downhill on a skateboard or even dumber holding on to your buddy's bumper while he drives <laughs> you on skateboard behind. You get, you know, speed wobbles. And that's basically the board. You know, it happens on bikes too. If you're down, you know, if you're a road biker, go, go down to downhill fast. You know, it starts oscillating faster than you correct. So you either need to just kind of very calmly, you know, try and, and center yourself to, to end those speed wobbles, or you're going to just go handlebars, you know, crash on your skateboard, whatever. I think that's where we're at with central banks, where they're so far behind the curve, they let inflation get out of control, waited way too long to try and normalize monetary policy. Now they're so far behind the curve, they're probably going to over tight and we're going to get a painful recession. They're going to, you know, Jay Powell's already told us that, you know, here in the United States, uh, if we get a recession, um, the Fed will use its tools, which powerful, quote, unquote, um, to address that recession. You know, using inflation hasn't come back down to target at that point, then you're just creating another inflation problem down the road. And so I think they're mm -hmm. in this, you know, by, this is the problem also being data dependent. And Mamad Elarian has been a very insightful critic in this regard that the Fed doesn't really have a, a forward-looking framework or how to deal with things. The one they had was dead wrong, where they, they changed the inflation framework and said, we're going to go for average inflation targeting right at the wrong time. So now that you know they're basically being data dependent, looking backwards and trying to steer the economy by looking in the rearview mirror, you know we're, they're going to be behind the curve on inflation, and then they're going to be behind on you know I think we're, there's a good chance we're probably already in recession here in the United States. You look at you know Treasury revenue and then you know declining significantly, uh, a lot of other signs, and so you know the fact that they're probably going to tighten again um, in May raise another quarter basis point or uh, 25 basis points um, is you know, only going to exacerbate that. 
And I think that you know, we're in this speed wobbles and it really takes a steady hand, somebody like a, a Polker to say, you know, we're going to hold rates here. We're going to, we're going to just hang out. We're going to let things work. We're going to, might be a painful session, um, but we need to, we need to just kind of, uh, do what we have to do to, to get the economy right on the, on, on the right track again. I don't have that same kind of confidence in Jay Powell that, that he's, he's willing to do that sort of thing. He's even said as much. Um, mm. So, Didn't the states ha- technically have a recession, but then the Fed came out and said that by their def- definition, it's not a recession or something crazy like that a couple of months ago? I yeah, feel we like had there was- two quarters of negative real GDP growth, but we didn't have unemployment uh, rising. And so you know, how they define recession is, you know, it's, it's not just GDP, it's, it's have to have unemployment and other things. And so, um, but I think the, the overall point is that I'm looking at is whether it meets the definition of recession or not, you know, we're in this stag, stagflationary environment where nominal growth is maybe still growing great. You know, maybe it's still running five, six percent, but if inflation's running five to six percent, you're getting, you're not going anywhere. You're, you're running, you know, you're like running as fast as you can to stay still. And that's not a healthy situation. So, you know, uh, I, I do think, you know, probably looking at a scenario like the, the 1970s where you have, you know, bouts inflation, Fed tightens, creates a recession, but they don't, you know, hold, uh, they don't hold monetary policy in a, way, in a way that's restrictive enough to really conflate into bed. That, and this is what, this is what we'll see, right? Markets are pricing in a pivot that they'll cut 75 basis points for the end here. And, uh, you know, if they were to, to pivot and, and start cutting interest rates again before interest, before inflation's normalized, um, you know, probably a longer term inflation problem. There's all types of you know, macro things that suggest inflation is a problem, regardless of the Fed, you know, demographics and deglobalization and these other things. And, and just the amount of debt that, um, uh, you know, it, it suggests that inflation is, is not going away. And re- the powers that be really don't want it to go away because that's really the only way we, we can manage that. Uh, over mm. you know, any period of time. Do you have a view on where rates need to get to in order to get back to that 2 3% inflation target? Yeah, I think you know, historically uh, we would need probably a real um, positive funds rate. So you'd need to raise the Fed right. funds rate above the rate of CPI. Um, you know, CPI came in today at 5%. You probably need a 6% Fed funds rate. You know, um, and we still have a negative, you know, real Fed funds rate. The Fed funds rate is below CI. Now, you could also look at something like the Taylor rule, which is, you know, developed by Don Taylor to, to create a guidepost for Fed to understand where, where monitor the Fed funds rate needs to be to, in order to achieve their, you know, uh, stable prices mandate. And you could argue stable prices means 0% inflation, not 2%. Um, but to achieve stable prices, you know, the Taylor rule has said for a while now that Fed funds should be closer to 10% uh, with where nominal GDP is and all the other inputs into the Taylor rule. So, you know, I think you'd at least need a positive real Fed funds rate, um, you know, and, and possibly you might need to go closer to a Taylor rule type of uh, policy framework. 
Well, a lot to think about there, but um, Jesse, we will take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to get your thoughts on gold because um, the last couple of times we've had you on the show, you've been very bullish on uh, on the asset class. So uh, really keen to understand where you're sitting on it now. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm here with Jesse Felder, founder of uh, Felder Investment Research and publisher of The Felder Report. Uh, you can find Jesse's research at uh, thefelderreport.com. I would strongly recommend checking it out. It's, uh, it's a really, really good read. But Jesse, as I said before the break, we first came across you with the analysis and commentary that you were doing around gold. And I think our first episode just completely centered around gold and was a really interesting eye-opening moment for us. You have been quite bullish on it. I think the first question must be, are you still bullish on gold? Absolutely. I think for, you know, uh, fundamental and, you know, technical reason, fundamentally, you know, the, the, uh, Gold price is, you know, uh, for a very long time have been seen by human beings as money. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny. My wife and I just went through and watched the, the you know, John Wick trilogy before we go watch John for the new one. And there's no coincidence that they, they all, you know, in this underworld, they all deal in gold coins. It's because... Uh, you know, no matter what happens in the monetary world, whatever outside world, a gold coin is going to buy you a, a custom tailored suit. Today, a hundred years now, a hundred years ago, gold coin is going to be have the same purchasing power that's always had. So you know, so it was interesting for me to, to see that. But you know, in environment when your your purchasing power in terms of the currency, the currency is being debased. Your purchasing power is going down, mm. and it's going down more rapidly today than has in you know since the the 1980s. Um, but you you need to find things that help you protect purchasing power. Gold has done that for literally thousands of years, and so I, I think it's. It uh, serves that purpose, uh, which is important in an environment like DJ. What we haven't had the chance to ask you about is, is Bitcoin. What is, what is your thoughts on the new digital gold? Where do you sit on, sit on Bitcoin? 
To me, Bitcoin has um, no intrinsic value. Um, it is a, uh, you know, Warren Buffett was talking about it today on CNBC. It's a speculative uh, vehicle. And I, I, that's, it's proven itself uh, in, that, in that respect that it has not a very good inflation hedge. And, um, you know, it, it, has, it really doesn't have any correlation with inflation or, or the dollar or anything like that. That, you know, the top correlation is with essentially uh, unprofitable um, companies that trade on the NASDAQ, where, you know, most speculative securities uh, on the planet. So I look at it as, as a vehicle for speculation. Yeah, fair. That's about it. So for retail investors like ourselves, um, <clears throat> How would how should we think about having gold in our portfolio? You know, from like an asset allocation point of view. Um, I mean, if you're able to give insight into the weighting that you might put towards it, we kind of often hear you know five percent is probably a, a good a good sort of um, weight to consider. But how how should we think about gold in our total portfolios? I think it's it's critical right now. This is something I've tried to make an important point to emphasize for the past five, six, seven years, which is when you look at the greatest asset allocators on the plant, whether it's Swenson or Ray Dalio or anybody else, um, the big difference you'll see between what they do and what the average investor does is that not only do they have stocks and bonds, they have a, a very healthy allocation to real assets. Now, that's going to be things that do well in an inflationary environment because stocks and bonds typically do poorly in an inflationary environment, which a lot of investors are running last year. You know, a balanced 60 free portfolio you had its first year in a long time last year. Uh, and so if you only own stocks and bonds, you better hope that inflation comes back down to 2% and stays there. Better than hoping is to say, I'm going to take a piece of my overall ad allocation mix and put it towards things that protect from like protect purchasing power. Um, that's things like Treasury, protected securities, inflation-adjusted bonds, um, commodities, and uh, and precious metals. So gold is is a part of that, and I think you know some people prefer real estate is also a part of that. Some people prefer you know, different types of real assets. For me, I think when you look at um, you know currency diversification, I want to be diversified across asset class. I want to be diversified across currencies. Um, then, you know, what currency is uh, in most more attractive than others or gold can't literally can't be, you know, debased or, you know, valued. So, um, you know, that's a good head against currency um, debase. And so I, I think, yeah, it's important to have some type of allocation. Uh, you know, you can look at, uh, you know, my friend Meb Faber wrote a great book on this topic called Global Asset Allocation. And, you know, it's anywhere from 5% to 25% you'll see across these asset allocation kind of models. And so somewhere in that range, um, I think is, is a good long-term scenario. Now, I think for like tactical investors, uh, you might want to even have a bigger allocation than that based on this, the type of environment that we're in and the, the technicals, essentially the momentum and the, the technical pattern in gold is very bush, uh, which would argue oh, it's a good time to be aware. Um, mm. Just on that, um, you know, a lot of the stuff you write does sort of center around um, using technicals um, and you're suggesting that it's, it's um, I guess, 
pushing towards a, a, an increase in price for gold. Over what period of time does are you expecting this to play out for, for gold? You know, I, I think gold's had a really good run over the last few months. Um, it might, you know, need to seasonally look at the seasonal pattern. It would suggest that, you know, gold could have, a, you know, take a little bit of a breather here for the next couple months. July, September are the next kind of really bullish seasonal period for gold. And, uh, you know, seasonality is usually not super important in a lot of different asset classes. It is in gold because um, there are seasonal factors to the way physical buying in India happens in China and whatnot. And so, um, you know, seasonal you know, pattern is, is more important for gold. Um, so it could take rest, but it's also breaking out in the process of breaking out in terms of, you know, in, in dollar terms to new highs right now. And and it's very possible that if, you know, the, the Fed is unhiding and appears as going to start cutting, gold could, could uh, you know, break out strongly higher. Over the, since the peak in 2020, over the last two and a half years or whatever, gold formed a very clean um, uh, bullish flag pattern um, in technical analysis. A bullish flag is when you see, uh, you know, pr- a trend go on for a period of time and then basically create like a sideways pattern before it breaks out and moves moves higher. It's essentially like a continuation pattern. So gold has been in that that bullish flag pattern for the past two and a half years or so. And if you look back, what did gold do 2018 to 2020? The really good, uh, I think, example of what it could do once it breaks out to highs. So that's about a $700 price move, um, 2018 to 2020, which could be what's head gold over the next year or two. Well, that kind of um, moves nicely into opportunities. And you you sort of mentioned at the top that it's sort of a bit of a a false horizon at the moment. And and for the equity markets, we, we could be looking at a uh, a continued bear market for the next 18 months or so. But are there any parts of the market that are exciting you at the moment? Absolutely. I mean, the, the commodity sector generally, I mean, the, the two areas within commodities have been focused on are precious metals and energy, so oil gas. Um, and the oil price is another one that just looks very, very bullish to me. We've had a, this consolidation in the oil price has been longer since the 2008 top it's essentially been in a, you know, uh, 15 year long, not quite 13, 14 year long um, consolidation pattern, you know, where we have, you know, not even tested those 2008 highs. It broke that downtrend um, last year, which is, you know, a, a very bullish sign. You know, when you, Paul Tudor Jones, is going to botch the quote, but he said, when you see, um, you know, uh, a very clear kind of consolidation range and a price breaks out above, it's a very clear sign that's going to continue going in that direction. And so momentum, I think, if any anything anything to learn from technical analysis, is just how to how to look at momentum because when something has momentum, it's very strong momentum. It's unlikely to reverse directions at that point. Usually, reversals, major reversals, come when you see. Momentum slowing down and waning are kind of a sign that things are ready to roll over in that direction. So I think the oil price has very strong long-term momentum. It's a breaking out above, you know, levels. And this, over the last year or so, it's come back to test those breakout levels, um, you know, on a technical. And from a sentiment standpoint, 
people got very, very bullish, or sorry, bearish on the oil price in the last you know month or two, thinking, oh God, we're going into recession, oil price is going to crater again. But what's different this time is that the frackers here in the United States are, are running out of uh, new wells, um, and so when oil prices were really strong in 2010s, frackers would go and pump a bunch of new oil and ended up getting a crash in 2014 in the oil price. That crash from 2014 to 2020 was a very, very painful bear market for energy. They can no longer pump like mad like they did before. And so that, that supply response just isn't there anymore. That is a key differentiator for the type of cycle that we're in now. I, I personally believe I think we're in, a, in the early innings of a new commodity super cycle. Oil prices, gold prices uh, are, are in the early stages of a, of a multi-year move higher. Wow. Love to hear that. We'll, uh, we'll definitely take note of that and um, keep a close eye. You mentioned um, momentum there and technical analysis is something that I don't spend a lot of time doing but can understand the benefits of including it as part of uh, an investment process. Is there a simple way for, for those or for us listening at home to be able to measure momentum for a, for a stock or a, a, an asset class that we're looking to get into to understand, does it actually have momentum behind it? Yeah. I think if you look at, you know, RSI is one of the most, you know, you pull up a chart on stock charts like or anywhere else and RSI and ACD are usually the new technical indicators that come up. I think people make the mistake of looking at overbought and oversold indicators on um, RSI as signs that you know, the trend is ready to reverse. Um, and I think that's not the case. If you see really high RSI readings or really low RSI readings, it's, it's, to me, that's a sign that's a very strong trend and price is going to continue in that direction for time. Um, so you could use something like that. I think it's also very easy to use things like moving averages. You know, uh, I think the, the, the first place to get started with technical analysis is to use just moving averages. Um, uh, you know, a, a trend following framework. So if, you know, if Paul Tudor Jones has said, I don't need to know anything about security other than whether it's above or below its 200 day moving average. If it's above the 200 day moving average, it's in an uptrend, I want to buy it. Interesting. If it's below the 200 day moving average, it's in a downtrend, I want to sell it. And so that's a very simple kind of framework, I think, for investors to, if you're looking at a security or, a, you know, an asset class or whatever, just you can look at 200 day moving average uh, versus price and understand kind of what, what the trend is. And so 200 day versus 50 day, that 200 is the, the one that you sort of would suggest starting with? Yeah, I think if you look at price versus the 200-day moving average, somebody else, um, you know, like uh, other trend followers might use the 50-day and the 200-day. Mm. When the 50-day moving average is above the 200-day, that's an uptrend. 50-day crosses below the 200 moving average, that's an uptrend. And when you get, if you just apply it to the S&P 500 index, I mean, you have a you have really effective mark timing methodology right there back and look at 30 years history of that indicator and it, it keeps on the right side of the market um, the vast majority of the time and keeps you out of the market during bear markets and in the market during bull markets and and so just understanding what the trend is um, I guess is the first crucial step to 
utilizing technical analysis. Well, Jesse, um, we have reached the end of our, our time together. So thank you so much. It's been a fascinating uh, discussion. I've, I've taken so much from it. And I know the Equity Mates community love when you come on the show, always um, really clear thought on on um, current sort of state of market. And I, as I said, uh, if you are listening at home, make sure you check out thefelderreport.com um, to keep up to date with with Jesse's uh, thoughts on markets and, uh, and, and different asset classes. It's been an absolute pleasure as always, Jesse. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Chris. Always uh, good to chat with you. Appreciate it. And equity mates, before you go, just one call out. If you could please leave a five-star rating and a review for the Equity Mates Investing Podcast, uh, we would really, really appreciate it. It goes a long way to helping us get in front of new ears and, uh, and to support the Equity Mates community. So if you could just leave five stars and a review, uh, it would be very much appreciated. But uh, we'll be back next week as always. Have a good week. You have been listening to an Equity Mates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.